Hello friends I'm your host Sujay and I welcome you to the 10th episode of the Meet Stargazers podcast Our guest today has been using binoculars for astronomy for over 40 years He has been an amateur astronomer since childhood and now spends most of his time doing astronomical outreach He is a fellow of the Royal Astronomical Society a past chairman of the Wessex Astronomical Society and a founding member of Fordingbridge Astronomers Today we will be discussing astronomy with binoculars. Without further ado, please join me in welcoming Stephen Tonkin. Steve, thanks for taking the time to speak to us and I'm excited to talk to you about stargazing with binoculars. Oh, thank you very much for inviting me, Sujay. It's a, a real pleasure to be part of this new initiative of yours. So, yeah. Let's do this. <laughs> thanks for joining us. Steve what brought you to astronomy and when did you get started ah well i can tell you exactly when it was the 5th of october 1957 and the reason i know that is because um sputnik had gone up the day before and my father took me outside to see if we could f- find it we didn't but it was my first night under the stars i was living Eight miles outside the nearest town in Rhodesia, as it was then Zimbabwe. It was pitch dark. It was beautiful, and I've been hooked ever since. A few little sideways away, you know, as a young man, you know, sort of getting more interested in girls than in the stars. But you know, generally, yeah, it, it's always been it's always been there since then. So, thank you to my dad. Thanks for sharing your journey with us. Steve why should one consider stargazing with binoculars and what makes a binocular a great complement to a telescope well the simple reason i think is when you're starting out in stargazing in particular if you've got to spend half an hour an hour setting stuff up you're going to get disheartened quite quickly however if you've got something that you can go out and be observing in 2 minutes <laughs> I think you're much more likely to start seeing what's visible, what sort of astronomy you like. Now, binoculars aren't perfect for everything, as we'll come to, but they are—they are really good because they're incredibly portable. So, if you live somewhere where it's too much light pollution or something like that, you can just go to somewhere where it's dark, and it's. very very easy and how how long does it take to take binoculars out of their case put the strap round your neck always put the strap round your neck because binocular repair binocular repair facilities love people who don't use binocular straps um and take off the lens caps up to your eyes focus them and you're away and it's so pleasurable and the other thing is because they've got a wide field of view again particularly when you're starting out and you're finding your way around the sky that wide field view makes it much much easier to find things so yeah there's a uh, definite reasons for starting out with them i've still used them i've got telescopes but i will the first thing i grab when i go outside is grab binoculars quick scout around the sky see am i going to stick with binoculars tonight or is it really worth setting up a telescope and you know i mean nowadays if i'm going to set up a telescope it's going to be up all night with it so yeah <laughs> cuz they they can take a long time to set up big ones um yeah so so that's re- that's really it and if you're doing something like imaging which is something else i dabble in occasionally with a telescope while the camera's chuntering away there doing its thing well you want something to do and if it's a beautiful if it's a night beautifully enough for imaging why not take the binoculars out and do what you can with them because it's then you then you're getting i think two for the price of one because you're getting the images and you're getting the visual pleasure isn't it it's wonderful it's just uh, lovely things to use thanks for your insights steve how do binoculars work and how does a binocular magnify the light coming from celestial objects okay binoculars work just like telescopes binoculars just two telescopes side by side so what happens and 
if uh, you've got a, a lens, uh, biconvex lens or something like that at home, you can, you can try this for yourself. You can just make an image of, say, a window onto a wall just by projecting it with the lens. Now, that image is there, whether or not the wall is there. <laughs> and then, so that's what the objective lens does, the, the front end of the binocular. And all the eyepiece does, it acts like a magnifying glass, and it magnifies that image. So now you could you could do that by projecting the image onto a sheet of paper or uh, ground glass or something like that, and then taking your magnifying glass or your eyepiece to it. But let's say that image is there, whether or not you've got something that shows it. So you just you just examine that image with your eyepiece, and that is how that is how that works. So if a a shorter length eyepiece is like a more powerful magnifying glass, and that will then give you greater magnification. Of course, with a lot of astronomical stuff, we're not actually magnifying the things themselves. We can't magnify stars, for example, not with amateur equipment. What we're doing is we're, we're magnifying the distances between things. But of course, then for things like the moon and planets, you know, the solar system stuff, and for nebulae and those what are called extended objects, then yes, we are magnifying those. But there's always a downside to it, because when you magnify it, you're spreading the light out. So if you magnify it too much, then it's going to get too dim and you won't be able to see it, or you lose the contrast between it and the sky. So there's always trying to find your, your perfect magnification. And for binoculars, I always suggest get something where your, your exit pupil, that's the size of the light that comes out the eyepiece is about five millimeters that seems to be roundabout best for most people it's easy enough to get into your eyes pupil most of us our eyes pupils still open to five millimeters so that's great and it gives us the brightest possible image or nearly the brightest possible image that we can see so with something like a 10 by 50 binocular what that means is it's magnifying 10 times it's object glass, the front bit at the front, is 50 millimeters in diameter. And to find the size of the exit pupil, you just divide the second number by the first number. So 50 divided by 10 gives you five. And that's that's nice. And I'll talk about 10 by 50s quite a lot because I actually think they're the, they're the real sweet spot for binoculars, particularly if you're hand-holding them. They are, they're and it's not just because that first night out with my dad, one of the things he did was pass me his 10 by 50s, beautiful Zeiss binoculars they were. Um, I've, I've tried others, and really, for an all-round one, I think they're very, very good indeed. Which criteria should one consider in choosing his or her binoculars for stargazing? Well, it's as you've spoken about, you want something that is portable, you want something that is good, as good optical quality as you can afford. Now, this can mean different things to different people. Um, let's and I'll say I always start off with ten by fifties. So you can get pretty good ones for um, sixty pounds. What's that about eighty euros? I don't know. We can do the conversions. Um, sixty pounds, but then you can get the the really good premium ones. Um, which will cost you £2,000 for the same size binocular. Now, now, obviously, they're not the same thing. And let's be honest, most astronomers are cheapskates when it comes to binoculars. We mostly don't want to spend too much money. But you've got the, it's always going to be the case that the best glass will give you the best image. But you need to be careful because there's also a lot of rubbish out there that's overpriced. So never get anything that, that zooms. Um, zoom binoculars are just a gimmick. They never work well. They always give you two images for the price of one, which is uh, not what you want from any instrument like that. And usually they're sort of very, very narrow field of view and not very good. But you want something lightweight because you want to be able to handhold it. Now, there's um, yes, mounting them. We'll we'll come to mounting them is is better, but handholding is what really gives you that flexibility. And it's what makes binoculars 
just so portable and so easily usable. You, you don't have to set anything up. So 10 is about as much as most people can hold comfortably if they hold them properly. And we'll talk about holding them properly later as well. That, that's a, we'll, we'll, we'll go down that road later. Um, so yeah, I'd say 10 by 50s, as good as you can afford. And if you're not sure, um, well, my uh, website will be on the thing for this podcast. Um, and you just drop me a line through my through my website, and I will do my best to set you off in the right direction. That is the best I can offer anybody, I think, for that. Thanks, Steve. Could you please compare the attributes of a binocular versus those of a monocular? Yes. Um, we are human. We've evolved with two eyes. And there is a reason for that. Where our two eyes were very, very much better than one eye, assuming normal vision, of course. And you can try this for yourself. One easy way to do it is in dim light, get a book or something and have it at a distance where you can only just read it with both eyes. And it needs, this needs to be done in dim light and it needs to be get that distance away from you and then close one eye. And all of a sudden you can't read it anymore. This is, and this is the thing about two eyes. It, it actually, in a sense, it gives us more aperture <laughs> when we're looking when we're thinking of looking at the sky. Because the more aperture you've got the, at the big end of your telescope or binocular, the more light gets in. The brighter things are likely to be. Um, it effectively it effectively gives you more aperture, and it, and this is to do with the way our visual system works. There's obviously. If you're using two detectors, you've got a higher probability of detecting something. And again, we're, we're talking about dim stuff. But the other thing is, anybody who's into astronomical imaging will know that you can reduce the noise by stacking images together. And our visual system, our visual cortex at the back of our head, does this with the images from each eye. So what it does by by stacking the two images together, it gets rid of, or doesn't get rid of it, reduces the neural noise, the, the, the random noise that comes in because our, our nerves aren't perfect. And it reduces that and it gives us a clearer, less noisy image. It improves the signal to noise ratio in engineering terms. And that is exactly why we use two eyes. And a lot of people will find um, even with a telescope, you can put something called a bino viewer on it, and they find it much more comfortable. There's something just really pleasant about observing with two eyes. And, well, binoculars are exist for that reason. Why should I consider mounting my binoculars on a tripod for observing the night sky? Well, let's break that into two parts. Mounting and tripod. And uh, I'll come back to tripod in a minute mounting them because it's steadier and if your binoculars are steady you will see more you'll see about half a magnitude to a magnitude deeper if there's got if you've got any shakes of your hand you might find detail goes missing so it'll, it'll bring out more detail all of this really really helps and if your binoculars are mounted it's actually i think a lot of people find it easier to use averted vision with it this is where you don't look directly at the object you look to one side so the light from it falls onto the more sensitive part on the periphery of your retina and it's i think that's easier for most people to do when they're mounted so that's i think it's it's always a good idea the downside is that once you mounting binoculars you've then got more stuff to carry around and this takes away from the portability of binoculars which is why i say i'll break it into two parts tripod and um and mounting i do not generally like tripods for mounting binoculars certainly not just ordinary photographic tripods because it's very very difficult to look high up in the sky with them because your legs get closer to the tripod's legs and I know we live in a, a universe of infinite space-time, but those five legs end up having a territorial dispute, <laughs> and, and they all want to occupy the same space, and it's uh, it becomes a bit of a, a trial. The other thing is, to get close enough to 
um, to be able to look high, you, one, you're going to get a sore neck anyway, and two, your chin's going to be rubbing against the, the tripod head anyway. So, you know, th this becomes this becomes an issue for me. The, the thing you can do is find a way of holding the binoculars away from the tripod, and there's a device called a parallelogram mount, which I use on big binoculars, which um, it's the, like cantilevered binoculars one side and a counterweight the other side, perfectly balanced. And the beautiful thing about that is as you raise and lower them, they're still pointing at the same thing. So if you're with other people, you can show some, you know, I can find something um, and then drop the binoculars to show a child and they're pointing at exactly the same thing. And you're away from the tripod. So you don't have this problem with, you know, your, all your legs trying to occupy the same space. So that's that side. And what I much, much prefer is a monopod. Um, one is it's got two fewer legs than a tripod, so that's less to get in the way. But the other thing is, and a lot of people don't realize this, the monopod does not have to be vertical to steady the binoculars. So what this means is you can sit down, you can have the monopod going down the side of your, your seat or your recliner, and we can be much, much more comfortable when you observe. And this is, I, I think it's lovely. And they're lighter than a tripod, so you're back towards the portability. And what I'd prefer on anything like that, also, if I was going to observe with a tripod, I'd prefer this as well. And that is a thing called a trigger grip head. So it's it's uh, you just squeeze the trigger on the thing, and you can manipulate it in any direction you like, and it makes it easy. And the whole thing about observing, particularly with binoculars, let's try and get that ease of it back. It's one I very strongly recommend. It's not made anymore, but you can find them all over the internet. It's a thing called a Manfrotto 222, and they are lovely. They're, they're so, so good. Um, they're very, very adjustable, so you can adjust them to, to suit your binoculars perfectly. Pop them on a monopod, and you won't look back. You'll just be looking forward and up. <laughs> Steve, which binoculars do you recommend for stargazing? Well, as you said, 10 by 50s. And if you're starting out, and mo now if you're starting out in in astronomy, you're probably not absolutely certain whether it's for you or it's not for you. So you don't want to spend too much money, but you want to get binoculars that, okay, if you decide stargazing is not for you, they're still useful for nature watching, or if you like horse horses, horse racing, or airplane spotting, or down at the coast just looking around, looking for wildlife, anything like that, which means you want something portable, handheld. And we're back to 10 by 50s again. Now, I know a lot of people into birding, say an 8x42 is better. And an 8x42 is certainly very good. You can hold it steadier because there's less magnification and it's lighter generally. But in astronomy, we're not using binoculars for quite the same thing as wildlife people are. They're really looking for detail. So they really need that steadiness. What we're looking for, we're looking to detect stuff. And that little bit of extra magnification does a number of things, one of which is it darkens the sky background slightly so you get better contrast, and it helps helps find things. Now, I know from when my son was a lad, um, nine years old, I think he was, when I bought him some 10 by 50 lightweight binoculars, and one night we were out in the garden, and he said, Dad, I've found something, and I asked him to show me what it was and he devised a star hop from something we both knew where to start with and it turns out that he had actually completely by himself found Messier 34 um, a lovely little open cluster now that's that's no big deal in itself that you can you know it's it's, a, it's an easy thing to see in in 10 by 50s but what it shows me is that if a nine-year-old holding binoculars properly and using appropriate techniques can find something like that and then devise a star hop to it he is in that state he's using those binoculars effectively and that's that's the important thing there and i think 10 by 50s um, definitely do that if i was telling anybody what to get starting out i would recommend there's something called an opticron adventurer twp 
Um, the WP stands for waterproof. We'll come to that in a moment, 10 by 50. It's lightweight. In the UK, they cost about 80 pounds. And I have not seen a better binocular for less than 125 pounds. I mean, they are really, really good. Waterproof, not because we stargaze in the rain, but because of dew. And you don't want dew to get into your binoculars. They, you'll start getting algae and fungus growing in them, and will also start getting corrosion of any metal parts. So waterproof binoculars are a good idea, particularly if you're out for a long time observing. So yeah, that's uh, I always recommend getting waterproof if you can afford it. So that that would be my go-to binocular for, for beginners. I've actually got a dozen of them which I use for outreach. Um, the Opticron TWP, I fundraised for those. And when COVID, before COVID started, and I'll go back to it when COVID's over, when I work with youngsters, I can just hand these out, show them how to use them. And then they're observing by themselves. I haven't got people queuing for things because they're they're effective, they're easy. So, yeah. Are there any observing techniques that you recommend to beginners? Yes, um, several. First of all, I've been talking about holding binoculars effectively. If you just look at your thumb, <laughs> the joint nearest the nail, you'll find it fits perfectly in the corner of your eye. So it's if, and it's really comfortable. And the bone below it, so it sits on your cheekbone, and it's almost, and it's how your hands almost naturally go to if you're shielding your eyes from light from the side. Hold your hands like that and hold the binoculars there. So you have a couple of fingers around the eyepieces and a couple of fingers elsewhere. And what you've done there, you've created two triangles with the two bones of each arm and your body is the rest of it. And we all know that triangles are the stablest structure. The other thing you're doing is you're taking the weight onto your head. If you try and hold binoculars um, as most people do, you grab them around the prisms like that. You're taking the weight on your arms, and as you go higher and higher, what happens is your arms get higher and higher above your heart. The blood supply drops to them. They start shaking. They start getting uncomfortable. If you're holding them up against your head like that, this doesn't happen. And if you're reclined and your head's supported, again, it helps support them. So there is no situation where holding binoculars around the prisms is the best way. If you're looking at something horizontal, like something on the horizon, hold them right by the ends of the objectives. That's how the American military teach people how to hold binoculars. That's, that's better for horizontal. But once you're looking anything a bit higher of, up, it's that hands up to your head, support the weight there. It feels like you're going to drop the binoculars. You won't, but you've got the strap around your neck anyway, so it doesn't really matter if you do. But it's, and after a while, it becomes so second nature that you just don't think of doing anything else. Um, and if you wear glasses, which I do, you can still do that. You just hook your thumbs underneath the legs of your glasses. <laughs> so, And you can, you can do, do exactly the same thing. There's there's no reason you shouldn't do that. So that's the first thing. The second thing is don't do what I see a lot of people do, which is put the binoculars up to their eyes and then start looking up and around. Never do that. Always look without the binoculars at the bit of sky you want to go to. And then try not to shift your gaze and put the binoculars in the way. If you don't see what you're your target is, you're almost certainly too low. This is just the way the way we perceive the sky means that this is, is the case. So try, first of all, try going up a bit. Now, there are going to be times when you can't find things. So you use very, very systematic search techniques. Um, the first one used, so suppose we're looking at something quite high in the sky, use something called a, a square spiral search. You start where you think it is, and go up if it's not there, go up. And you can just go one field of view up, one field of view to the side, and then two fields of view down, two fields of view the other way, three up, three across, and you're making this square, and you're gradually searching a wider and wider bit of sky. And usually by the time you get to about three fields of view, the 10 by 50s, you'll you'll have it. If you if you don't have it, you're probably either looking completely the wrong part of the sky, which you know, even somebody with 
lots of experience sometimes does. You know, it's, it's these things happen, or it's not bright enough for your binoculars. So that's usually what's the case. With stuff near the horizon, so for example, if just after sunset you're trying to find Mercury when it's close to the horizon, start where you think it is, and then scan one way, scan the other way, then go up, go up about, I'd say about two-thirds for field of view, so there's always a bit of overlap, scan the other way, up, scan the other way. So you're doing like a, a, a step up, and again, if you're looking at the right part of the sky, you'll usually, you'll usually find it. And the, I mean, these are techniques you're going to use anyway if you start visual observing with a telescope. They're still, they're still useful techniques, and I think the sooner you start to use them, the easier they become, and the, the more it, it just makes all your astronomy observing so much easier. So start how you should go on, I think. Can I see the moon with binoculars? Oh, yeah. I mean, you can see anything you can see with your naked eye with binoculars. So, again, I'll come back to the 10 by 50. So those ones, I, you, you can get binoculars that are bigger, that magnify much more. Um, some, you know, some very good premium astronomical binoculars can go much, much higher magnification. But we're, again, we're talking about people starting out. People who are going for those things will know what they want anyway. You're magnifying 10 times. You'll see craters. You'll see along the terminator, which is the bit where the sun is rising on the moon, the bit between light and dark. You'll see along there, you'll, you'll see little peaks of craters um, being lit when they look like they're detached from the rest of the moon. And then, you know, you look at them in an hour's time and they've become attached or, or disappeared, depending on whether the moon's waxing or waning. And you can certainly pick up a bit you know, a bit more detail. You can certainly see what Galileo saw effectively, which is that the moon is a rocky place. It's more like Earth than a perfect sphere. But let's be absolutely clear. If your thing is observing the moon, binoculars are not the instrument of choice. You want something that magnifies more. Um, I would actually suggest something like a, a small refractor or a Maxutoff or something like that which can get a lot of magnification, and use a zoom eyepiece. Now, zoom eyepieces, they're not, unless you pay lots of money, they're not the best quality, but it's so much fun to be had by moving up and down the lunar terminator and zooming in and, and finding the ideal magnification of what you want. You know, again, enjoy this. Um, but no, telescopes, because of the high magnification, are better for the moon and also better for the, the larger planets. So we're talking there, Saturn, I have seen Saturn's rings in binoculars magnifying 15 times. It was an incredibly still night, and there were very good binoculars. Um, but you won't see them with 10 by 50. You probably won't even notice it. It's an odd shape. You can see with 10 by 50, you can see, um, you can see Saturn's moon Titan. You can also, with um, uh, Jupiter, you can see the moons that Galileo saw easily. Um, you don't need 10 by 50s for that. You can use the horrible little plastic lens things that they try to sell for, for children's toys. I've seen two of Jupiter's moons in those. You know, they're, um, they're not, and they're not brilliant. So you can actually see a bit, but you won't see surface markings with 10 by 50s unless they are incredibly good quality ones and the sort of things that you know, beginners aren't going to buy anyway. So there and you won't see detail on Mars anyway. I think people over expect on Mars generally. You will, as long as you do it at the right time. The right time is actually twilight. You can see um, the phase of Venus with with 10 by 50 binoculars. You can see this is not a this is not a disc. This has definitely got a phase. I've never done manage that with Mercury with 10 by 50s, but the real bit, I think, for for binoculars and planets, if we're going there. I know you asked me about the moon, but the planets, I'm sure, will, will come. The thing about planets are the ones that we find difficult to see. Uranus, Neptune, and Mercury. And binoculars are great for that. I actually think of Uranus and Neptune as the binocular planets. And watching them from night to night, uh, Neptune hardly moves at all. Uranus, you know, well, 
week to week probably. But also the minor planets, um, asteroids like Vesta. Um, as we're recording this, Vesta is very, very bright in Leo and easy in binoculars. And you can see, you can notice that it's moved over a couple of hours. So this is, you know, Binoculars will help you with that. Now, you're not going to see any detail on Vesta with any sort of telescope you're going to buy as an amateur. So you're getting just about as much um, detail as, you, as you're going to get there. And, you, and just watching things like that move night to night, I think, is absolutely fantastic. And you start do, reliving the things that much earlier astronomers, the much earlier visual telescopic astronomers saw. And uh, even going back further than that, when you're looking at how things like Mercury move in the, say, in the evening sky or in the, in the dawn sky, careful in the dawn because you, it's always close to the sun and you don't want to be looking at it or too close to it when the sun comes up. So, But evening sky for Mercury is, is ideal because it's, it's, once the sun's set, it's not going to cause you any harm. Um, so, yeah, that's... Uh, you're, you're looking at things with Mercury. You're, you're seeing the same sorts of things that our ancestors were seeing maybe 3,000 years ago, trying to work out how this, this sky system of ours, how it works. And you're, so you can relive that. You can connect with these people through that. And this is a wonderful thing about astronomy anyway. The night sky is the one thing that we have in common with all of humanity that's ever lived uh, this is why I'm so keen on preserving it. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. That is so beautifully said. Could you please take us on a tour of some of the easily accessible celestial objects in the winter and summer night sky? Yes, let's do about half a dozen of each, I think would be good. So for a start, we'll start with a winter night sky. And we'll start with things that you can see with the naked eye. So... Almost everybody, with a bit of help from a star chart perhaps, can find the Pleiades, the Seven Sisters. They look like they can, if they're low down, look a bit like a fuzzy patch. But most of us will see, you know, about six stars when they get higher up. Use binoculars on them. It is superb. You can tell, actually, when someone's done that for the first time, if you're around them. They make exactly the same noise as they make when they've seen Saturn's rings to a decent telescope the first time. It's wow! <laughs> it's like someone's just spilt diamond dust onto black velvet. It is so lovely. So these hot blue stars. So they're blue-white stars, very, very brilliant. And then you don't see, not the Seven Sisters. 10 by 50, there's, you know, it depends on the quality of your night sky. They're the 40 sisters or the 80 sisters or something like that. And you can just spend time on it. And there's a, a bit you'll see. There's a whole string of stars coming down from the brightest star in the, in the cluster, um, sometimes known as Ali's Braid. That bright star is Alcyone, so Ali for short. And it's like, it's like she's got a, a, a he braided hair coming down from it. And you can make these imaginations. Of course, it's not that at all. But it's, you know, we, we, we have these imaginations. So that's the, the first one. We then move eastwards from there, and we come to the Hyades. Now, it's a V-shape with a very, very bright star at one end of one of the Vs. That bright star is Aldebaran. It's the eye of the bull, the bull that uh, Zeus put in between Orion, which we'll come to next, and the Pleiades to stop Orion chasing them across the sky. He's, of course, he still does every night. And the Hyades is a very, very close cluster to us. So it's big. It won't all fit in your binoculars. You'll have to sort of cast around it a little bit, probably. And that bright star Aldebaran is actually not part of the cluster at all. It looks like it's part of it. It's actually a foreground star, which is one of the reasons it's so much brighter. And so there's those two clusters there. The next one we're going to come to is... It's got the very, very boring name of Colander 70. And it's a cluster that most people have seen, and nobody knows they've seen it. Because it's basically, we're going to Orion's belt. Now, most people use Orion's belt. Oh, we're going to find the nebula below that. Well, you can do that. But first of all, just give 10 minutes on the belt, because it's this beautiful, again, huge 
cluster of stars. It, it's really, really lovely. It's not just the three stars of the belt. There are hundreds of stars there, and they're all part of it. It's called an OB association. It's, a, it's essentially it's an open cluster. They're gravitationally bound stars, but they're relatively close. So they've spread out over a lot of sky. And there's all these beautiful little pairs of stars, little triplets of stars, and then these sweeping curves of stars. Um, if you look, if you start from the west, go to the east, between the two stars, the central star and the western star in the belt, there's this beautiful S-shaped bit of, of sky. Look, you can imagine that as a swan's neck. And then you come up and it turns into the swan's wings between the next two stars. And it's there's, so there's these things you can imagine in it. And you can make these little pictures for yourself and it'll help you remember what you saw the next time. And this is, I think, absolutely, absolutely lovely. Um, and then if you must, go down to the nebula if you have to. Um, uh, 10 by 50s, I'll, sh I'll sh certainly show you the nebulosity there. Um, the darker the night, the better it'll be, obviously. You'll see that it's there's a little indent in it, which is sometimes called the fish's mouth. You know, that's where stars are being born. But it's, it's you really need a bit more uh, um, aperture and magnification for that to really get the best out of it. But then you can go up into Auriga, and there's a little group of stars in there that looks just like a mini version of the constellation of Delphinus, the dolphin. So because it's little, it's called the minnow. It's a little fish. It's called the leaping minnow. And it's uh, another little cluster of stars quite near it, which is usually called the splash. So it's like this little minnow's jumped out of the water, all upside down to us, of course, um, and uh, splash there. And you can then just look around there, because we're now getting into the Milky Way region, and you will almost certainly see another few clusters around there, little little fuzzy patches. And there's just gaze around, because that is is so lovely. Then we move over into Cancer, the crab. Beautiful cluster that you can see with your unaided eye. The ancient Greeks knew it as Nephelion. Um, we usually call it the beehive cluster or Pricepe. This is another thing that's made for binoculars. And you can see with that, you see, there's actually something interesting going on there. All the bright stars are near the center, and the fainter stars are near the outside. And you're actually learning a little bit of astrophysics here. This is some. This is something called mass differentiation. And you can imagine that if you know you've got an adult and a small child swinging round, and they let go, well, the the small child's going to go much further. And this is exactly what's happening with these stars. They're interacting gravitationally, and the smaller stars go faster and further. Therefore, they end up nearer the outside, while the more massive stars accumulate in the middle. And you'll find this with a lot of open clusters. But it's really, really obvious with Pricepe, the beehive cluster, M44, whatever we want to, want to call it. So that's a lovely, lovely one. And the last one we'll do for the winter sky, which we're now coming into spring, really, is Berenice's hair. There's some lovely myth mythology around uh, Queen Berenice of Egypt. She swore that if the gods would let her, her husband come back safe from battle, she would cut off her beautiful hair as, as thanks, which she did. But in honor of her, Zeus put it in the sky, according to the legend there. And so it's just behind Leo the lion. So it's on the western side of Leo the lion. This is fuzzy patch. And again, it's another made for binoculars cluster. To the ancient Mesopotamians, it was something completely different. If you know your um, Shakespeare, Midsummer Night's Dream, there's the play within a play, Pyramus and Thisbe. It's Thisbe's veil, which she dropped behind the lion when the, the lion frightened her. And which then Pyramus found, and he did his dramatic um, dying scenes. He thought Thisbe was dead, and all the rest of it. But that's a, so that's it's there. These things come into mythology. These things have been known for thousands of years. Look at that with binoculars again; it's just absolutely beautiful. And um, if it's a really good night, go down a little bit from there, and you'll start seeing some very very faint, small fuzzy patches. You're in the realm of galaxies. So that's a, a way to start there. In the summer sky, well, we actually have the, the northern Milky Way up, which is, which is quite nice. So 
um, there's enormous amount of stuff we can do around there. There's um, a very, very faint constellation up near uh, Cassiopeia. It's called Camelopardalis, the giraffe, the camel leopard <laughs> in uh, ancient thought, I believe. And if you take the two stars at the ends of the W of Cassiopeia, Cassiopeia, and you go exactly the same distance into, into Camelopardalis, have your binoculars there, you'll see there's this perfectly straight line of stars, very, very faint, bright one in the middle, and it's called Kemble's Cascade. It's utterly, utterly beautiful. And at one end of it is a little open cluster. And you can imagine that this is like a ribbon waterfall falling into a splash pool. It's, it's delightful. Coming back into Cassiopeia, the middle star of the W, if you hold that at the south of your field of view, so you're the rest of your binoculars up towards the pole star, you'll see there's this triple curve of stars, which was actually discovered by somebody in uh, the Cotswold Astronomical Society, a man called Eddie Carpenter. And he said, it's just like a little roller coaster in the sky. And it is. And 10 by 50 binoculars are by far the best thing for looking at them. So this is uh, a, a nice thing you can do then, you know, the, uh, and it gets better towards the autumn as well when, the, when that gets higher. But it's it's, it is really a lovely, lovely part of the sky to look at. And just think of that. You know, if Eddie could do that, and he delighted people with it for decades. You could do the same. You know, anybody can do the same. You find something in the sky that maybe nobody's actually noticed before. I mean, of course, people have seen it, but nobody knows, hey, that looks like something. So you've, you can have a look at, you can do that and show it to other people. And then, you know, like Eddie, maybe you can live on forever in people's memories. The other bit while we're up in that part of the uh, Milky Way, there's a um, another one, Colander 399, um, which is otherwise the coat hanger in Vulpecula. Uh, it's, a, it's literally a little group of stars, but the brighter stars look like a coat hanger. I mean, lovely star party material, and it's a nice time of year to do it because it's warmer, and if you're showing children the night sky, they will love things that look like things. Back into Cassiopeia, by the as you're looking at as as a W, the bottom left star of the W, just around there, there's a little. It looks like a little pentagonal kite with a with a tail, um, the Queen's kite. We can go further along towards Perseus, and there's the Perseus moving cluster, Alpha Persei moving cluster. It's just load of stars to get them moving together but halfway back towards Cassiopeia there's a little fuzzy patch you can make it out with the naked eye it's a Perseus double cluster and there's a string of stars going off from it to the north follow that string of stars and at the end of it it's a very faint looks like a stick figure and he's standing in a sort of bodybuilder pose and it's like he's got the the double cluster on a leash with, with this. And that's sometimes called the muscle man cluster. It's just, again, it's fun to look at. You must in the summer go down to the, the bottom end, as it were, of the, the Northern Cross of uh, Cygnus to the star Albareo and learn how to find it because it is beautiful. Even in 10 by 50s, you can split it into the two colored stars. You will see that one is gold, the other is sapphire. And it's learn how to find it. It's, it's just it is just always beautiful. You need to make sure your binoculars are extremely well focused for that, and then go down into the Southern Milky Way, because this is where the Milky Way is at the densest. We can only see this bit in the summer, certainly from uh, northern latitudes. It's much better in the summer, and you've got things like the Scutum star cloud and the Sagittarius star cloud, and these are bits of sky where you will not get more stars into a single field of view of binoculars. It's I've seen these when someone's found seen them and said, there's a cloud on the horizon. Well, yes, it is, but it's not in our atmosphere. That is actually part of our galaxy you're seeing. It, it's, it's beautiful. And there's just so many beautiful experiences you, you can have with this. So, um, yeah. Uh, and then browse around the Milky Way. Always browse around the Milky Way with binoculars. You will find things 
you won't know what they are. But it's a lovely thing to do. The thickest part, the Milky Way, there's no problem finding stuff. The problem is identifying them afterwards. But you know, just, just enjoy them. So, yeah, that is what I would suggest. You are an amazing communicator, Steve. Oh, thank you very uh, much. I, I could continue <laughs> listening to you this way for, for a long time. Which are some of the great resources that have helped you on your journey in astronomy? Well, actually, two of them are physical resources. One is a planisphere. I've had a planisphere since I was eight years old, and I still use them. They are great because they don't need batteries. They don't need anything like that. And you can just set the date and time on them, and you can see what the sky's like, and you can plan your observations, You can, and it's, and it's easy. And the more you use them, though, the, actually, the easier they become. And you can start seeing, you know, if you want to work out, you know, what time is, um, I don't know, something, something you want to look at, say, um, Venus is going to rise. You can, you can work out where Venus is on it, you know, just put a little marker on the thing or something like that. And then just swivel the disk until Venus comes above the horizon. And then you just look on your date and look at the time and you know when it's coming up. You know, this it's so easy. And in the days of, you know, where we've got all this very, very good technology around, having something that is simple, I think, helps take us back to really helping to understand how it all works. Because fantastic as a lot of apps are, you don't see the whole sky in them most of the time. And there are, there are some that you do. So as an app, I always use Sky Safari. I use the um, Plus version because I like it very much. But I actually, more than that, I use a little book called Collins Gem Stars. It's a little star atlas that fits in your shirt pocket. It is that small, and it is astonishingly good. The uh, maps are drawn by uh, Vilturion, who is a graphic designer. He, he does the best star charts in the world. There's no doubt about that at all. I think in, in anybody's mind who's seen them, he's a fantastic um, celestial cartographer. And the words are by um, Ian Ridpath, who is a fine astronomy writer and a, ve a very fine astronomy c communicator. And there are literally hundreds of things in there you can see. It goes constellation by constellation and little map of this night sky. You need a red torch to read it by. Make sure it's a dim one. You don't want to damage your light vision with it. The, the charts are on blue, which, of course, looks black under, under, under a red torchlight. So you've got... You've got You've got the contrast there, and it's a. I actually still like my paper resources, and it's a good. It's still printed on very good quality paper, so it doesn't get too dewy and wet. And anyway, it goes back into your pocket afterwards. A star chart you put in your pocket. So that's, those are things I would very, very much recommend, starting out because really, when you're starting out, you need to learn what's going on. You need to learn how it all fits together. And it's so much easier to see that with a planisphere than it is from an app. You can, but if you are going to use an app, I say Star, Sky Safari on the phone or something like that, and on your PC, use Stellarium. It's free. It is incredibly versatile. And again, for starting out, it gives you an almost photorealistic view of the sky, so you get a a good idea of of what things might look like. You can zoom in and out easily. You can search things. It tells you about, about them. You can limit how much information you, you can see if you don't want the entire screen full of things that you might not understand when you're starting out. But it's, it's really very, very good. And the team that have put that together, you know, I think they, they deserve a real applaud because they've they have done something that has been a fantastic gift to the astronomy community. So yeah, recommend that. Thanks, Steve. Where can our listeners find you online? Ah, lurking around lots of astronomy forums, um, but often just just lurking. Um, but my my binocular website is one called binocular sky, or one word dot com, and you can find me there. Um, say if you want to, in a bounce ideas off me about what to look at or questions or anything like that then yeah there's 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 contact form on that you can do that there alternatively um i produce 
uh, every month a newsletter, which I call the Binocular Sky Newsletter, which is aimed at Northern Hemisphere, but I know I've got somebody at least as far as 30 degrees south uses it. And it's what I think are the, are the best things to look at that month in binoculars. So a bit of solar system stuff, the uh, deep sky stuff, of course, doesn't change from year to year that much. Well, I might write a little bit more one year than another, but usually it's pretty much the same. But things that, you know, what, what the binocular planets are like, what they're doing, where to find them, what you can see with that, and any bright asteroids I'll put in there. Um, things called occultations, which is when the moon or an asteroid moves in front of a star. They're fun to watch. And you can actually do some real, really good science with them. If you want. So I've, I've put those in there, variable stars. Variable stars are stars that vary in brightness. It says on the tin and uh, some, some double stars, some pretty double stars. So there's there's something for everybody, I hope, um, and that and that's free. You know, I just want to get people looking up. This is we've got a half of our environment is above the horizon, and you know, let's let's really enjoy it while it's there. Thank you, Steve. Friends, I hope you enjoyed this episode and found it useful. Steve has a wealth of knowledge on stargazing with binoculars. I encourage you all to subscribe to his monthly newsletter, Binocular Sky. He has assembled valuable resources on his website dedicated to using binoculars for astronomy. You will find links to his books and website in the show notes. If you liked this episode, please consider buying me a coffee. You will find a link to my Buy Me A Coffee page at the bottom of the show notes.